Today's podcast has been brought to you by Green Shoe Studio. Not a lot, and I know that there's like a conspiracy behind it, but honestly, that's about it. I honestly think it was his wife because he was having an affair. I think the mafia and the vice president were in on it together. Like, I think I remember it in high school, like hearing that it was like the mafia. I think it was the government. They had something to do with it. Oh, like, like years ago, right? I've never actually like thought about it. Yeah, Honestly, I don't know. Well, I think it was. Well, I think Linda Brown told me. Who? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Somewhat Skeptical, where we explore the odd, the obscure, and the unexplainable. My name is Elizabeth. And thank you for joining us for our third and final episode in the JFK series. Eleven witnesses stated they saw the gun in Hickey's hand, three of whom placed him holding it during the third shot. The lead car, the president's car, and the follow-up Secret Service car arrived at Parkland at 12.36 p.m. George Hickey, armed with his AR-15 rifle, received orders to protect Johnson at the hospital. Once Hickey was able to secure Johnson, he returned the rifle to his follow-up car. Then he was asked by one of the president's aides to find a priest. From Dallas, Texas, a flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. According to Texas law, the autopsy had to be performed before the body could leave the state. Dr. Earl Rose was the Dallas County medical examiner. He was well aware of the law and he was adamant about protecting all evidence from the crime scene. But Agent Roy Kellerman, remember him from the last episode? He wanted to take JFK's body to the president's hospital near Washington. An argument was had, Dr. Rose refused to let the body leave the hospital, and Kellerman told Rose it didn't matter what he said. It was the president's body, and they were going to take it back to Washington. Admiral George Berkeley, Kennedy's personal doctor, also argued with Rose. Ultimately, Rose had to back down. I can't help but wonder how different things may have turned out if Rose was able to perform the autopsy. Maybe we would have more answers, maybe it could have been the same, but unfortunately that wasn't the case. So that leads me to another question. Why did the Secret Service want to move the body? The chain of evidence was lost when the body was boarded onto that plane. Were they just caught up in the moment and wanted to get home, or was it part of a cover-up? It's hard to imagine how dozens of Secret Service men didn't see the figure with the gun in the sixth floor window of the book depository. At least 10 witnesses say they saw the figure. How is it that men trained to see that kind of thing just didn't? Well, to figure that out, let's back up. The night before. The night before the president's assassination, several Secret Service men went out. The Secret Service agents are dedicated and a close-knit band of brothers. They stood together through thick and thin. There were a lot of downsides to the job, long hours, endless pressure, and lots of time away from home. Because of that, a lot of Secret Service agents suffered from heart attacks, alcoholism, 
and sometimes even suicide. The SS agents put JFK to bed just after midnight, and then, for some reason, went bar hopping. They were said to be in the company of scantily clad women, as the Warren Commission said. Strippers, in other words. The drinking went on until 5 a.m. until they finally left to prepare themselves for a 7 a.m. start. And obviously, that doesn't leave much time to sober up. Not to mention they didn't get any sleep. They would have already been exhausted. And on top of that, they were most likely hungover. Definitely not in their best performance. Maybe that factored into why they didn't see Oswald in the window. I don't really see how it couldn't have. The head of the SS, James Rowley, defended his agents when he was questioned by Chief Justice Warren. He said even if they hadn't participated in those activities the night before, they couldn't have prevented the assassination. Back to Hickey. His main role was as a driver, so he was already in Dallas preparing the cars for motorcade. He was 40 years old and had only been working for the Secret Service for four months. He didn't go out the night before. That had to have been the reason that he had to step up. He was the one that had to take the rifle and take the sniper role in the follow-up car, a role that was completely foreign to him. The responsibility to take out that rifle should not have been his. In the immediate days following, the Secret Service agents were required to write reports about their actions that day, including George Hickey. He states, At the end of the last shot, I reached down to the bottom of the car and picked up the AR-15 rifle, cocked and loaded it, and stood partway up in the car and looked about. At this point, the cars were passing under the overpass, and as a result, we had left the scene of the shooting. I kept the AR-15 rifle ready as we proceeded at a high rate of speed to the hospital. His memory of what had happened is really interesting because he claims he had the AR-15 just as they were going under the overpass. So that's one man's word against the 11 that say he had the weapon at the time of the third shot. Of those 11, seven of them are Secret Service agents. They're trained to remember and take notes of their surrounding and what's going on. But I suppose that's a weak argument considering they didn't see a man in the window holding a gun. Sam Holland was standing on top of the overpass at the time of the shooting. Holland said after the first shot, a Secret Service man with a machine gun stood up in his seat and then sat back down. Kellerman confirmed that the weapon was in the car, not in a case, and it was ready to go meaning that it was cocked, loaded, and all that had to be done to shoot would be to turn off the safety. In his written statement, Hickey said, I reached to the bottom of the car, picked up the rifle, cocked and loaded it, and stood partway up in the car and looked about. So why do these two sworn testimonies go completely against each other? When Earl Warren was questioning James Rowley, he confronted him about the use of assault rifles in the motorcade. James Rowley denied the existence of a rifle in the follow-up car. Warren followed up with, We know from the other testimonies you did. Rowley kind of evaded the question, scrambling to find an answer, and finally responded with, We have no machine guns now. The AR-15 was a relatively new weapon in the Secret Service arsenal, and immediately after, it was withdrawn. If the fatal shot was performed by Hickey, the actions of the Secret Service becomes even more intriguing. Why did they refuse to allow an autopsy in Dallas? 
Air Force One landed with Kennedy's body in Andrews Air Force Base outside of Washington at 5.58 p.m. The streets had been cleared to take the body to Bethesda Naval Hospital, 28 miles away. JFK's personal physician, Dr. James Berkeley, is the head of Bethesda Naval Hospital. He arranged for the hospital's chief pathologist, Dr. James Humes, to conduct the autopsy. Humes knew how they handled things would be critical to any criminal proceedings. There were two FBI agents that were appointed to stay with the body through embalmment, and those two were Agent Silbert and Agent O'Neill. Most autopsies are performed by a small team of pathologists, but one of the most important autopsies in history had at least 30 people in the room. Representatives from the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the FBI, technicians, pathologists, all working in a massive crunch to get this autopsy done. Arguing, talking over each other, Dr. Humes even stated that he wished he could have chucked them all out. He compared it to doing delicate neurosurgery in a three-ring circus. The room was loud and people were screaming at times. The doctors were being harassed. X-ray technician Gerald Custer was directed by Dr. Humes to take x-rays of the president's head. After he developed the pictures, he brought them back to the autopsy room to be viewed by everyone. Custer later testified that his superior, Dr. John Ebersole, told him to keep his mouth shut about the autopsy. Two different photographers were asked to take pictures of JFK's body, particularly his head wound. These pictures would be critically important evidence. When one of the photographers was questioned, he was asked if it would have been possible to leave with any of the film, and he said no. They took it all, over a hundred different shots on eight or nine different rolls of film. They even took the rolls of film that hadn't been used. The FBI records indicate that they had taken 22 color rolls and 18 black and white rolls. The care of these rolls was entrusted to the Secret Service, Agent Kellerman to be exact. He told the head of the FBI he would send copies of all the pictures to them, but he never did. The chain of evidence leading to where these photographs may have ended up stopped with Roy Kellerman. Several people in the room were reported to have interfered, like a four-star general and a civilian who Custer took to be Kennedy's personal physician. When Custer asked if those two men were giving directions to Dr. Ebersole, he replied without hesitation, correct, absolutely. He was asked what kind of directions were they giving him. Quote, in a sense, the Kennedy family would not like you to pursue this path any farther, end quote. After Humes had completed his autopsy, he wasn't happy with his work. So he stored the president's brain in a stainless steel pail for further forensic analysis that would never happen. The pathology slides that Humes made were given to the Secret Service, and he never saw him again. Almost none of the proper procedures were taken during the autopsy. Secret Service men that were witnesses, they were present in the room and they were wearing blood-stained clothing. Nothing was bagged and labeled as evidence, and most importantly, the pathologist wasn't allowed a calm setting for examining the body. Shortly after the autopsy, Dr. Humes' boss, George Berkeley, told Humes that Robert Kennedy wanted his brother's brain. 
Dr. Humes handed over the pail with Kennedy's brain without questioning. He was only thinking of the Kennedy's family and whatever they needed to get through that time of grievance. What happened after that, no one knows. What George Berkeley did with that brain is the mystery of the last century. Days after the autopsy, Dr. Ebersole returned from a meeting at the White House. Allegedly, Dr. Ebersole gave Custer, the x-ray technician, three or four different metal fragments in varying sizes and asked them to tape them to the bones. Custer said he was asked to take x-rays of these bones with the fragments taped to them. He was asked to manufacture an x-ray that would obscure detection of an explosive, frangible bullet. Virtually everyone in the autopsy suite was forced to sign a gag order. Remember the two FBI agents I mentioned that were in the room, Silbert and O'Neill? They were told to take extremely detailed notes about the going-ons. Well, guess who got them and promised to make them available to the FBI but never did? That's right, Roy Kellerman. Sibber and O'Neill were two vital witnesses to the autopsy. However, they were never called or interviewed or even questioned for the Warren Commission. Why? Their testimonies would have been so important to the Warren Commission, so why weren't they called to take part? Assistant Counsel Arlen Specter met with the two agents and asked if they took any notes during the autopsy. Of course they said yes and they gave them to Roy Kellerman. So then why did Specter write a memo stating there were no notes made by Sibbert and O'Neill? Custer told Specter his story, the whole story, what he was told in the autopsy room, what he was asked to do with the bullet fragments. He waited to be summoned by the commission, but he never was. Thirty years later, the Clinton administration initiated the Assassination Records Review Board to release documents relating to the shooting and conduct interviews about JFK's autopsy. At this time in the early 90s, most Americans believed the truth about the assassination had not yet been told. With the releasing of the film JFK by Oliver Stone, it just added fuel to the fire. Because of that, Congress passed the JFK Records Act, which led to the ARRB interviews. In 95, the ARRB subpoenaed all records to do with the Dallas trip from every agency involved. However, the Secret Service destroyed all their records the week earlier. Yarborough, who was sitting directly behind Secret Service agent Hickey, remembered he smelled gunpowder and said it clung to the car all the way to the hospital. Warren demanded that Yarborough be called to testify, and he never was. It's unclear whether or not Spectre spoke to any of the Secret Service men in the follow-up car. Only one of the men provided their testimony for the Warren Commission. The shot couldn't have come from the grassy knoll because there was no entrance wound in the front of the head and no exit wound in the back. It couldn't have come from the overpass because there were 12 people up there who would have seen it. So was there a conspiracy cover-up? Was there a plan to take JFK out? Was it possibly an accident? Could George Hickey have heard the shots, grabbed the rifle, turned off the safety, and in the panic of the moment accidentally fired? No, this isn't an exciting answer. It's not one of those possibilities that you hear and you're just taken back. You don't get goosebumps. It's not even really satisfying. But it could make sense. So what do I think happened? Well, a combination of a lot of things. 
It may be a little out there, but here's the way I see it. JFK was losing the election. After the failed Bay of Pigs invasion, he was seen as incapable by most of our country, and there was a big chance that he wouldn't get reelected. So what could be done to make Americans see him in a different light? Well, what if he took a bullet for our country? How would people see him then? A pity vote is still a vote, and it still counts. So basically, in my mind, here's what happened. The CIA hired Oswald to fire a non-life-threatening shot. Given his connections to different places, it seems like he would have been an obvious target for this. And in the heat of the moment, Hickey was startled, and he fired off a shot. And that ended up being the bullet that ended the president's life. Like I said before in Hickey's testimony, he claimed he picked up the gun, cocked and loaded it, then looked about. But Roy Kellerman said that it was already ready to go, meaning it was cocked and loaded, but the safety was on. And the rifle was not Hickey's job. So maybe when he picked up the gun, he had no idea that it was, quote, ready to go. I have no way of knowing if this is true, but if it was, it's very possible that JFK didn't even know about it. His advisors could have planned it knowing it was the only possible way to get him reelected. And with this theory, everything kind of begins to fall into place. Why else would the Secret Service try so hard to cover for Hickey? He was nobody. He'd only been in there for four months, and they were hiding evidence and shredding documents and getting rid of photographs. Well, because if the truth came out and people started looking more into the mystery, it had been the end for every member of the Secret Service. I mean, we're talking serious prison time, possibly even a death sentence for planning to shoot the president. Why did they have to take out Oswald two days after the assassination? Well, because if he was questioned enough, he would have come out with the truth. He would have said something like, I was only hired to shoot the president. I have no idea who fired the kill shot. It could fit into this mystery that we've been trying to solve for over 50 years. This isn't like other podcasts we've done where there's an answer or a conclusion or a satisfying ending. But at the very least, I hope it made you somewhat skeptical. Thank you to our sponsor of this series, Green Shoe Studio, for making all this possible. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter and send any of your questions, comments, thoughts to info at somewhatskeptical.com. Today's podcast has been brought to you by Green Shoe Studio.